If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 19. That's on page 541 in that blue Bible in the pew in front of you, or the chair in front of you. If you, have, if you don't have one at home, please bring that with you, with just that one stipulation that you will read it. And please read it. And if you have any questions, Pastor Chris, myself, or Pastor Matt, or one of our elders would love to sit down and talk with you about God's Word. We love God's Word. It's why we encourage you to bring a Bible with you and to open it with us as we follow along. But as you turn there, have you ever heard of this word called revival? It has been around and actually in the news not that long ago. But a year ago, there was, actually, I don't even know if it was a year ago, but not that long ago, uh, there was something in the States that was happening. um, And some people had some strong opinions on what that was and what it is. And I think personally, the wiser group said, wait and see what it is, because that's what it means to understand what revival really truly is. History is full of revivals. As you read through church history, and I love church history because it, 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 it continues on on God's faithfulness after Acts. God, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily even after Acts. All right? So that's why I love church history, as we see how God's word continued to increase. And we see that. We see revivals throughout history. Even, you know, there was one in the 60s in East Africa. There was the two great awakenings in the 17 and 1800s. There's the Welsh, Wesleyan. And even, I would say, in China right now, they're going through a bit of a revival as well, as God's people continue to, uh, to, to grow and to submit themselves to God's word. But the question that really needs to happen first is, what is a revival? Because as we get into Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41, it's important to have that in the back of our minds as we get into what is happening and why it is happening. See, a revival is a sovereign and transformative work of the Holy Spirit that brings about a renewed emphasis on biblical truth, conviction of sin, genuine repentance, personal transformation, and a deepening hunger for God's presence and glory. And this is why you need time in order to see these things, right? Because genuine repentance can really only be seen over time, right? But we've seen these things already in Acts. Even last week, as people confessed and divulged their sin to one another, and that led to burning uh, their ties to their old life as they had a massive bonfire of like a $50 million bonfire. It leads to a renewed commitment to God's sovereignty and a revitalized devotion to God's word and a fervent pursuit of holiness unity, and evangelism as the church goes out. Many of our church movements of of great evangelism movements happened out of revival. But here's another question. What difference does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ make in our lives today? What kind of impact would there be on a culture as God's kingdom grows, as his word increases, as God's people live out as transformed people with new hearts that enable them to believe. And we will see the outcome of how the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to transform not only lives of individuals, but a whole culture and what that looks like. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up. Open that app, whatever you got to do, as we follow along in verse 21 of Acts chapter 19. 
Now, after the, these events, Paul resolved to, in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been here, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Aristus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many of people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, as that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, and dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into that theater. Now some cried out, one thing and some others, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowds prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is, is, temple, is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash." For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there is pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if, we, if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Lord, as we come to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, Lord, I pray that you give us hearts and ears that enable us to hear what your word has to say. Lord, help us to be attentive. Help us to be not distracted and to focus on what your word has to say. Lord, I pray that our act of listening would be one of worship to you. And Lord, I want to worship you as well, and I want to preach so that you are glorified. 
I want to speak of you and praise your name. And Lord, I cannot make this turn out well on my own, so by your spirits, will you help me to preach this sermon with what is needed, Lord? Please use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So in verses 21 to 22, we see that Paul is resolved by the spirits. In verse 21, he says, now after these events, so that means that we have to go back and kind of give a little quick synopsis of what was happening so that we understand what is currently happening. What has happened before, as we saw, we saw the 12 men who God saved, and then we saw all of those uh, magicians burning all their books as they confessed and divulged to one another their sins. And the gospel has now gone from Asia and has now been going throughout all of, sorry, Ephesus, and has now gone out all of Asia. It's important to remember as we look at what's about to happen, these things. The gospel is starting to have an effect on people. And Paul is resolved at this moment in the Spirit. What does it mean to be resolved? Well, we can use the word stubborn if you want. But this is more than just a human stubbornness, more than a, a human resolution to go. He was driven by the Holy Spirit to go. And we saw something similar in Acts 13 where he was driven by the Holy Spirit not to go somewhere and to go somewhere else. And after there, he had been there a little while, he, must, he, wants to go to, uh, sorry, he wants to go to Rome. But first he needs to go to Jerusalem. But why? See, because the text doesn't tell us why he's going to Jerusalem. But in Romans 15, we actually see that he's going to Jerusalem at this time, carrying a collection of all the generous contribution that the other churches have given to Paul to help the poor church in Jerusalem. We have to remember what's happened in Jerusalem so far, right? There's been, a, uh, there's, there's been a, a famine. There's amazing persecution. If you're being persecuted, it's very hard to get a job. And it's very hard to get a job. You don't have money. If you don't have money, you can't get food. You can't pay your bills. So the generosity of all the other churches comes, and they, they give Paul money to give to the church in Jerusalem, which is not a small church, right? We're looking at thousands, right? Thousands and thousands. So when, when I thought, start thinking about the generosity of these other churches and giving money to Paul, it's not like he's walking with like 20 gold coins in his pocket, right? And I don't know that for sure, but you just start thinking about it. The church was generous. And he sends in verse 22, he sends his helpers to Macedonia to help prepare the way for, for Paul coming to ask the churches in Macedonia for money to help the church in Jerusalem. See, as I said, it's, remember, it's important to remember what is happening. And we see that how the gospel is transforming the, the church and the people in the church at this time to be generous with their money. What a great example of a local autonomous church is helping other churches. There is only one kingdom and one gospel. I know that's a simple thing to say, but oftentimes, I know I can be guilty of this, we kind of hoard things and seek to build our own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. But everything that God has given us is a gift and has been used and given to us to be used for his kingdom and for his glory. So one of the outcomes of the gospel transformation is a renewed desire to be generous. Realizing that all we have is a gift 
and to be used to bring glory to God and to help our brothers and our sisters in not only our own church, but other churches as well. It's why we give to church plants here in London. It's why we seek to help other churches by, like, sending other preachers who need them. It's why we have been helped ourselves so generously. We know Jesus to be the greatest treasure. Our earthly treasure loses its value when we think about that. It's an amazing reminder of why we financially give to the local church. We give out of worship, not compulsion, centered on what Christ has done for us. You know, sometimes uh, when God saves people, um, they, they might be in a family situation where they, family members find out, why are you giving money to that church? No, I was having a, uh, my, uh, I go to the same barber every time because I like that. It's consistent. I know what I'm getting every time, right? And I go, and I talk with him, and I build relationship. He knows I'm a pastor. And the other day, he was mocking me for, for, for church, and I was like, because, uh, you know, the, the financial regulatory things of churches are a little fuzzy sometimes, he said. And I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You do understand that Revenue Canada has us under a microscope literally all the time, Right? There's a stipulation out there in the world of why we give, but we give out of worship because we have a God who's given us everything we have. Literally, the breath you just took is a gift from God. So we use that gift to bring worship. We use our finances to bring worship. And to withhold financial giving is not withholding something from the church. It's withholding worship from God. And when you put it in that perspective, man, There's some repenting that needs to happen. But the more I reflect on what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, the more I come to know the grace that God has so lavishly poured out on you and me, and that affects everything about me. Even my generosity. And the gospel changes our priorities, even with our money. And we see that in verses 23 to 27 as we see this giant and big disturbance that begins to happen. Why is there such a great disturbance? Because changed hearts create a changed culture. And those that were making money off of these things were part of that old life that these new Christians were part of at one point, but now they have a new life. Now they're not spending their money on the things that they were once spending their money on. And we see that, right, as Demetrius comes through. The gospel is not just permeated all of Ephesus, but is now going through all of Asia. And things, the bottom line, is starting to be affected. And that's why the disturbance begins to happen. In verse 23, about this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And Christianity was the reason for this growing disturbance. The way is being used, that word, the way. And it's a way of describing a distinction in beliefs and practices of the Christians from other religions. Even Judaism and other cults of that time. In order to understand why things are getting so heated, we really need to understand the culture of this time. The silver trade had grown so much, it had flourished so much at this time because of the uh, the religion of that time. 
All those religious trinkets and items that they had were all based upon Artemis. So there's a culture shift that is happening so great that when people begin to look around and they start looking at their pocketbook and going, wait, I used to make this much money at this time last year, they start crying foul. That's not fair. So what we are seeing is that the gospel is a threat to every religious belief and practice, not just the Roman world at that time, but even the world today. It's why there is so much opposition to the gospel. In verse 24, we see how they make these silver shrines of Artemis. And there were these like little silver um, replicas of the temple of Artemis. And Artemis was the most important god of the city of that time. She was the mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto, if you remember your Greek mythology. She was the goddess of health, help. She had lordship over supernatural powers. Starting to sound a little familiar, eh? Uh, She was a virgin who helped women in childbirth, a huntress armed with a bow. And at the same time, with all of those things, she was also the goddess of death, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. It did for them. She had a pretty full portfolio. And that's who Artemis was. And you can see why she kind of had this status within this church. There's a lot of things she was responsible for. And if you stopped worshiping that God, well, maybe she wouldn't start blessing. But in verse 25 to 27, Demetrius gathers all of the other men who are involved in this trade or kind of connected to it, and they begin to give three reasons for why what is happening is wrong. The first one is money. From this business, we have our wealth, he says. There's a financial implication as the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, as we saw last week. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. There's a lot of city pride within this. Right? I grew up in in Burlington, very close to Hamilton, and the Thai Cats, right? And, and I still remember growing up, and you see the Toronto Argonauts showing up in Hamilton. You know, there was like spitting and throwing stuff and all sorts of things. Because there was, it was Hammertown, right? There was city pride there. And here the temple was this thing of city pride. It was a great attraction to the ancient world. It would have played a part in the prosperity of that city because it would have drawn people from all over the place. We see this with the Olympics. You know, the Olympics are happening soon, and the cities want that contract. Why? Because it brings in a whole bunch of business into that city. They spend billions and billions of dollars to get, I don't even know if it equals out, but somehow it does. The third thing is this, is that she may be, Artemis may be disposed from her magnificence. The transforming power of the gospel is so strong that what was once treasured is no longer treasured. And the more people God calls to himself, the more the culture shifts to treasuring Jesus over trinkets. The identity of the Christian was no longer in a God that was made by hands, but in the living God who created the hands. So yes, 
the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily, and Demetrius and the other silver smiths were very worried about what was happening. As we continue on in verse 26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul was persuading and turned away a great many people, saying gods made with hands are not gods. The gospel is going into all places. I hope we see the theme. That nothing can stop the gospel. There's nothing in history that can stop the gospel. Nothing has for 2,000 years and nothing will for 2,000 more. It won't be stopped. And Paul has been preaching this, right? We saw this in, in, in Athens when he was in Acts 17 when he said, The God who made that world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. The thing that just logically doesn't make sense is how could something be a God if it depends upon me? It doesn't make sense. And it's amazing how not only them, but we do it too. We do it all the time. We always put our trust in something else rather than the one who gave or created all of those things. This, was, this has all come out to, in, of Paul's argument that says that gods made with hands are not gods, and Demetrius has something right from what Paul has said. A god who is made by human hands needs us, doesn't it? Our financial portfolio needs us to constantly tweak it. But a God who created all things doesn't need to be cared for. He cares for his people. Humanity gives nothing, but he gives everything. And we see that in the cross. We gave nothing, and he gave us everything through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We did nothing to deserve that. But Jesus Christ steps down from his throne. He pays the price for our sins so that everyone who believes and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior will have life, eternal life. He is our hope in life and death. That is who our God is. So the question for the Ephesians and even for us today, are we busy worshiping a God made with our hands or the living God who made our hands? The same God who created the universe with just one word is the same God who steps down from his, his throne to pay the price for our sins. To believe in Jesus Christ is to rest in his all-sufficient substitutionary death. His work is finished. Our hands can do nothing to add to that work. A God who is made with human hands needs to be fought for because he is not a God. But we have a God who doesn't even dwell in temples made by human hands. As Isaiah 66 verses 1 to 2 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one who, to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. We have a God who is sovereign and providential, and we don't deserve any of this. 
we don't serve a God who's confined to a temple. We serve a God who created the world. The outcome of putting our trust in something made by my hands rather than in a God who is sovereign is the need to act for him. We don't act for our God. We worship our God. We allow him to do the acting. We rest in him. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to honor him and to bring him glory and to, to do what we can, but we also rest at the same time. A God made with hands needs to be defended. And on a side note, there has been a push over the last little while in the Christian world to try and legislate change. But biblically, over and over again, we see this right here, that God is the one who's in the control. And the way, we cha- the way culture is changed is through changed hearts. As God grabs hold of that heart, he gives them, he takes it out, that stone-cold heart, he takes it out, and he, sorry, he inserts a heart of flesh that enables them to believe, that also has a desire to follow God. And as more and more people begin to have changed hearts, what happens? The culture changes. And that's why we're called to be faithful witnesses, knowing that God is the one who makes it effective. The church in Ephesus in Asia, they were so definable that they stood out and they asked for attention. And it began to affect the culture around them. You know, I had to ask myself, and I hope you ask yourselves this too, do I stand out like that? Do you? Are you definable in the same way that the church in Ephesus was? Do we ask for attention in our actions, in our attitudes, in what we're doing You know, when I get up to go to church on Sunday, I'm the only one in my neighborhood getting up. You want to know what's something that's distinct? Where's Nate and Steph? As everyone's still in their coffee and their PJs. We are to act differently because we stand out, because the gospel has so transformed our lives. The gospel has the power to change the culture of the city, and it is succeeding in that, as we see in Ephesus. When we drive from north to south to east to west in London, do we not see how our city needs to be transformed? I drive, like, my heart breaks now as I drive. Like, our city is so broken And what we need are people who are faithful in their witness and living lives that are transformed by the gospel. The gospel transforms lives to the point it changes their spending habits. We see that here. You know, it has been said, if you want to know someone's priorities, look at their bank account. The Christians in Ephesus knew that as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will devout, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. They understood that the gospel took no prisoners. It took it all or nothing. And that was the beginning to show in how they lived, how they spent, how they were generous. It showed in their priorities. You want to know a practical way that a Christian can look different from the world? 
because a difference increases our witness, by the way. We don't increase our witness by looking more like the world. We increase our witness by looking different from the world. I'm not talking about clothes. Well, in some cases, clothes, right? But in our attitudes, how we speak, how we talk about our spouses, how we talk about our children, how we talk about our workplace and our boss, how we talk about our time, how we use our time. This wasn't about a church making themselves so distinct that they isolated themselves. They were still a people in the world, but not of the world. And if they weren't in the world, people wouldn't see their distinctness in everyday life. So one way we can stand out is just by how we handle the money God has given us. You ever thought about that? Maybe we don't eat out as much, which I need to work on. Maybe we don't go on one of those many vacations we go on. Maybe we do a staycation. Maybe we don't buy that brand new car. Why? Because we worship a God in our giving because the gospel has transformed our lives in such a way it affects our spending. We see that with Ephesus. What are your priorities? How has the gospel so transformed your life that it affects how you spend the money that God has given you? How great could our witness be if our spending and generosity showed more of the priority change that happens as the gospel transforms. And I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but it should be a difference over time. What would we see in our culture if Christians lived as transformed lives? The disturbance continues to grow, but it will also get calmed. As we see in verses 28 to 41, the disturbance begins to be calmed. And in verse 28, they just begin to yell, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I really find this funny. This, nobody knows what they're doing. You ever see that? When emotions get in the way, people just go crazy. Like two times we see they're just confused. They don't know why they're there. There is, was a strong relationship between Artemis and the Ephesians. And what happens when the rejection of the true God has happened? A vacuum is created that will be filled by something. If it's not the love of money, pleasure, sex, recreation, whatever it may be, we see that here as they begin to chant, great is Artemis of Ephesians. The love of a false God has filled the vacuum that was created in the rejection of a true God the true God. And with the civic and religious pride, a riot begins, but also confusion follows. Over the last little while, we've seen a few riots happening. And you know, it's funny, when the news person kind of goes around, they start asking that question, why are you here? What are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And you get like a hundred different answers. They don't know why. All they know is that they want to smash something. And ever, ever seen those videos of someone who, like, kind of just stands up and, and just stands in front of a store. Just stands. That's all they do. They just stand there. And then somebody else kind of stands behind and then just keeps going. And it just keeps going and going and going and going. And then someone comes up and asks maybe the 20th person in the line and says, hey, why are you standing here? And they go, I don't know. I, I thought we were lining up to go to the washroom or something. And, or, you know, and then you start asking the further people... This is what's happening. They're just following, and nobody knows what they're doing. Chaos is ensuing. So the city was filled with confusion. And something I need to under, you need to see, there's a dichotomy that is being created between the gospel life and the life of the world. 
The church should not be marked with confusion. We have the word of God. We are marked by those who submit themselves to God's word. You know, that's why we, our members' meetings, we don't come around and, and everyone's just standing up and yelling at one another. Right? We're coming together to unite ourselves under God's word and to pray together. So they take Paul's friends and they drag them off. And we've seen this before in verses 30 to 31. We've seen before that Paul does not shy away from danger. Remember, Paul hears about his friends being dragged and the first thing he does is he gets up and he starts walking out the door. You know, I, I, I want to be more like that, to be honest. But Paul wanted to go, but the other Christians held him back. And among those people that were holding him back were the Asiarchs, who were actually wealthy aristocrats of that time. You see how the gospel has begun to permeate not just the worship, but also the civic government? The gospel continues to go and continues to go forward. We don't know if they were Christians or not, but we do know that there's an impact of some kind. In verse 32, there's more confusion is happening as the yelling begins to grow. The people that are there don't even know what is happening. And on a side note, what's interesting, this word assembly in the work is called ecclesia, which is the same word that is described for church. And I'm not saying that's the same group, but I want to prove a point here. The church is gathered. There's always been an idea of the church gathered together. Just like we see all these angry, yelling people. That's why we gather together as a whole community to exalt Christ through expository preaching and singing songs that testify of the richness of our God. I go to church to be with God's people and to learn about him and to make much of him as we sing these songs about him. And in verse 33 to 34, there's a push to make sure that the Jews aren't being associated with the Christians. You know, so the guys, the Jewish people, the population of the the city, they say, hey, Alexander, you're the guy. So you could just imagine this poor man. There you go, Alexander, take care of it. And as he stands between, uh, in front of the assembly, and you have to think of a, 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 a big uh, uh, descending grade where the stage is actually at the bottom, and, and that's where they are, and all the assembly is above. You see these ancient Greek uh, buildings you see in, 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 if you read history. So they push Alexander out there. But they don't listen to him either because they realize that he's a Jew and they just start yelling even louder for two hours. That's a lot of attention span. You know, on a side note, what's interesting here is that even from the very beginning of Christianity, the Jews did not think as Christians as part of them. That's important. Because sometimes in our culture, especially in North America, there has been a push to blur the lines between the Christian God of the Bible and other religions' gods. We all serve the same God. No, we don't. The Jews rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which means they reject God. They need God just as much, they need Jesus just as much as the Muslim, the atheist, the Sikh, and the Hindu. 
They're not the same. And they never thought it was the same. Ever. They actually sought to make a dichotomy between the two. And they just keep yelling, great is Artemis of Ephesians. But in verse 35, we see how this town clerk, the church administrative officer of this time, who was in the middleman between the assembly and the Roman officials, he calms the crowd. And once again, you see how God uses the government official to provide protection for his disciples so that the word of the Lord may continue to increase. Will that always happen? No. Has it always happened? No. Remember Stephen, still got stoned. And as he continues to talk, he talks about the sacred stone that fell from the sky, which is a meteorite. So Paul comes and he says, gods made with hands are not real gods. That's what he says. So the town clerk comes along and says, hey, look, we got a meteorite that came from sky, and it's Artemis. It's not made with human hands. So what do we have to be worried about? I imagine if Paul was there, I don't think it would have calmed down anytime soon. Because he would have argued that point. So you see God's sovereignty even there. And what the clerk is saying is that nothing should stop the confidence that the Ephesians have as they have been divinely visited by Artemis. But here's the problem with that statement. Why are Demetrius and his buddies protesting money, but because the gospel has already had an effect. The gospel has already begun to take no prisoners. As God brings revival to Ephesus and what we've seen in all of Asia and Africa and now even Europe, the gospel has the power to transform lives. So what, you may ask, Well, the gospel has the power to transform cultures as lives are changed. What difference does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ make in your life right now? Right now. And this right here is the big sign of what difference the gospel makes in the the lives of these people. And what we see here is a clash of cultures. And it comes out as God brings revival. So let's remember what revival is. The evidence of revival is changed lives. Out of changed lives comes great movements towards righteousness and evangelism and social justice occurs and holiness happens and believers are once again spending time in prayer and the reading of God's word, seeking to be obedient to God's word. Believers begin to powerfully use their spiritual gifts. There is confession of sin and repentance. Why? Because the gospel transforms. God's people are a new creation, and their desires are different than they were before. Their attitudes should be different than they were before. Notice I'm not saying perfect. I was having a conversation with someone, an older saint, this morning, and they were saying, I struggle with people who disagree with me and not being angry. And I was like, you and me both, man. We struggle with those. Everything is different, though, because they have been transformed, because we are new. The believers in Ephesus and the surrounding area had turned from their old life of worshiping gods made with hands to the God who created the universe. 
And there, were, there was a financial threat that happens as the commerce begins to change. The riot begins to happen as they seek to preserve their culture and their religion of that time. But the gospel faces those same challenges today. But as we have seen last week and the many weeks before, the gospel always prevails. The gospel always increases. So let us stick to what we've been called to do, which is proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us seek to know the gospel, which is our hope in life and death. Let us do these things. Historically, when we look at the lasting effects of revival, we see cultures change. In the Second Great Awakening in the United States, it played a pivoted role in in getting rid of slavery. Did you know that? You see the gospel transformation, how it trickles? Because now people are all made in the image of God. They all have value in in the image of God. The Welsh revival brought an increase in philanthropy and efforts to alleviate the poverty of the time in the communities. See, we get so worried and fixated on how everyone else is living, but we forget that we are the ones that are called to be holy and distinct and different. If we focus more on how we are living and making much of Jesus in that, I think people will begin to look at us a little differently and start asking some major questions. You know, I was reading up on generosity within Canada, and the Fraser Institute's uh, did a, a study back in 2021. Um, and the numbers that I'm going to give are for Ontario. You can actually go and look at all the, the generosity of all the other provinces, and you can see which province is the most generous. It's not Ontario, by the way. Ontario is not the worst, but it's not Ontario. It's, Mont- it's uh, Montreal. It's Manitoba. I went to school and I learned provinces, you know. Out of all people who file taxes, okay, which should be 100% of people, by the way, it is illegal not to, so if you haven't, please file your taxes, 19.8 people donated in Ontario. Only 19.8. The percentage of total income that was donated in Ontario was 0.61%. Not even a full percent. The average annual charitable donation in Ontario, the average, was $2,272. I want to ask you this question when it comes to the generosity. What difference in the darkness of our culture would God's people live in? What difference would the gospel make in our lives here and now in our generosity? right? My sister works for Revenue Canada, so I'm always talking to her about, why do I keep getting flagged on these things? You know, the government flags anything over 5% because it's odd. If you're giving more than 5% of your income to donations, they flag it. Because it's odd. I don't know if it, it should not be odd in the church to be generous. We see how the gospel transforms our lives. What difference does the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ make in our lives today? Maybe we should pray for revival. Maybe we should start with ourselves.
which will trickle out into our culture. Pray that God would revive our personal and our homes and our families and our church because the gospel has the power to transform cultures as lives are changed. Let us pray. God, the truth of how Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead has a past, present, and future implications in our lives. The gospel doesn't allow us to stay in our old lives, but, create, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are created as new crea- creatures, new creation. So God, give us a resolve to live in light of the gospel, to be bold with the good news of Jesus Christ, to live as changed people. May we live in such a way that people will look at us and say, what's up with him or her? And may that give us, and give us boldness to proclaim the gospel in that moment, in that time. And Lord, may you grab hold of people's hearts. May you give them new hearts and enable them to believe. May your kingdom grow here in London. May your kingdom grow. And Lord, may we just be, uh, I just long to be used by you in that process. So Lord, I pray that you would use our church for your glory and for your honor and to increase your kingdom. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nate, for bringing us God's word this morning. I just ask if you are able, if you would um, stand with us and join us in singing.